appreciate it. If you have a Bible, please open it up to the letter of James, the New Testament. Book of James in the New Testament. If you're using one of the Bibles under your seat, you'll find it on page 654. If you don't have a Bible, I would love it if you took that home with you. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I always encourage people to start in the book of John. You'll be introduced right away to Jesus and some incredible things that he said and did. Uh, but please take that Bible with you. Page 654. Uh, I just want to, um, you know, say right up front, I'm, I'm just going to make a promise to you. Don't worry. Uh, I am not going to make us talk about the eclipse tonight or do any eclipse illustrations or jokes or anything like that. So I just want to put you at ease. If you're here tonight, you're welcome. Uh, if you're here tonight and you're clamoring for that, I'm really sorry. I'm going to completely let you down. So, uh, but tomorrow will be pretty great from what I hear. So uh, our passage tonight, James chapter one uh, is starting here in verse five. And the first six words of the passage say, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, I don't know about you, but as I read those six words, if my heart had a hand, it would just pop up. Like, yes, right? That's, that's totally me. And I think for most of us, in a way, if you, if you read those six words, you might scoot to the edge of your seat with a little more curiosity, like what's going to be said next? Like, what is really going to happen? Why? Because. Because being an adult is hard, right? Or maybe you're not an adult, you're a teenager, I'd admit being a teenager is pretty difficult, isn't it? I remember when I, I married Liz, uh, Elizabeth, um, a little over 11 years ago now. And right after we got married, um, I, I started to have all these initial thoughts. Okay, They weren't thoughts of regret at all. No, I felt very lucky. Um, but I began to have these sort of panicky little internal thoughts because I realized all of a sudden, like, I have to, like, provide for another person now. It's not just me anymore. And then babies started showing up in our house, you know, and I'm like, gosh, I have to like know things and they're going to look to me to actually know things. And I have to provide for these little people and try to maybe help them navigate through life a little bit. And then, you know, uh, about 11 years ago, I became an associate pastor. So people started to look to me for maybe even like spiritual direction. And then you, you throw everything else like grad school and bills and appointments and health insurance and blah, 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 blah. You know, you get the idea. Being an adult, there's a lot of responsibility. It gets pretty difficult at times. And I'll just be completely honest with you. There were so many days where I would look back, and I still do on some pretty hard days. And I go, man, remember what it was like to be a kid? Just no worries, right? You just eat, play, have fun. And the two rules were like, pass the grade I'm in and don't get in trouble, I was literally like all you had to do. I mean, for some of us, maybe you had a, a different story. But for me, that was, that was my story. Becoming an adult, it's difficult because all of a sudden you have to know things, right? And not only know things, you have to know how to apply those things to specific situations. But then you can take that a step further and just consider how often in your life you, you don't know the answer to something. You don't know the answer, right? You, you don't know what you should do next. You don't know what you should say in a situation. You don't know how to make sense of your life. Like, what do you, what do, you do in those moments, you know? What do you do when you experience something in life that's really painful? 
you suffer in some way, or maybe you're even being persecuted for your faith, how do you respond to that? How do you take the next step in life? Or, or what do you do when you encounter a major life decision? Maybe it's, it's where you should live or what path you should take in life or should you date this person or break up with this other person or should you marry this person or should you take this job or adopt this child or become a foster parent or move closer to your, your parents who are gonna need some care sometime soon or do you do public school or homeschool? I mean, the list goes on and on. But I mean, really, just think about it. We are confronted with questions every single day of our lives where we have to take things, we have to take knowledge, and we have to somehow put them into answers and decisions. Can, can we all just be honest together tonight, just for a moment? We, we don't really know what we're doing, do we? I mean, some of you are like, no, I know what I'm doing. I'm not talking about a skill or like a field of study. I'm not talking about you being awesome at like creating things or you know, doing web design or engineering or mathematics or English or whatever, you name it. I'm not talking about that. You could, you could become so competent in a field, you're like, I know what I'm doing here. But I'm just talking about life. I'm just talking about normal, everyday life. Because I'm certain there's nobody in this room who's already done life once and you're on your second time through, right? We all really don't really know what we're doing. We all have questions. We all have uncertainties that we face all the time. And it's because of that, it's because of that precisely that tonight's promise is such a comfort to us. God promises us wisdom. He promises to us wisdom. And so we see in verse 5, we see the promise of wisdom. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see the person that can actually receive this promise. So in verse 5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Well, why would James, who's writing this, right, the, the brother of Jesus, why would he be saying this? Well, we just want to be really careful quickly to not rip this completely out of its context and try to understand what's going on here, because James is writing to some people, some real people flesh and blood people just like you and me. And what had happened is they started following Jesus. They really believed what he did, what he said. They believed he was the Messiah, the Savior, and they were being really persecuted for their faith. And if you're with us this last year, we went through the book of Acts and there was a man named Stephen who was martyred for his faith. So Stephen believes in Jesus and people are like, well, let's kill him because he believes in Jesus, you know? And so he's killed and all these now Christians, these Jewish Christians are scattered throughout this region. And James is writing to these people because these people, they are trying to figure out what it means to be Christians with this new faith that they have in the midst of persecution, as they are away from their homes, as they're away from their friends, as they're away from their families. This is like real socioeconomical persecution that's happening here. And, and we see in these verses right before the ones that I read, they're told that God actually uses hard times, difficult times, trials, suffering, whatever you want to call it, as a tool to shape you into the person that you were created to be. That he actually uses those things as a tool to make you more like Jesus. 
We see that in the first few verses. And so here, the verses I just read, James is kind of anticipating how his audience is going to receive those words. Because they could probably look at something like that just like you might be right now and go, yeah, that's, that's good. Okay, that's great. I'm glad that happens, but hey, uh, that's really hard. So what am I supposed to really do with that? Okay, what am I supposed to do? Well, that's the question James assumes is going to be asked here. And so he gives them the answer to it. He says, what you need is wisdom. You need wisdom. Well, just simply put, wisdom is the right application of knowledge. It's the right application of knowledge. It's taking all those ideas that you have in your head and synthesizing them into application. It's, it's applying all of your knowledge into a right decision. That's what, that's what wisdom is. And for James, you must know this. James, when he uses wisdom, what he is saying, if you read his entire letter, what he is saying, he means that he's wanting you to synthesize the gospel and to apply it rightly to the scenarios that you encounter in life. He is wanting his audience to take their beliefs, this this gospel message that we'll talk about here in a second, and to turn those beliefs into actions, right, that actually matters for their everyday life. So if you read the letter, he's talking to them about, hey, caring for orphans and widows, or, or the way in which you use your words, or he talks to them, about seeing their life from like a 30,000 foot, foot view, right, okay? If you read the, right, he's saying this is what you believe, therefore you should live in, in this sort of way. It's taking what you believe and, and filtering your life through that. So he is wanting his scattered, his persecuted audience to think on their beliefs that have changed them and shaped them, their belief in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and to apply those to their situations, So wisdom is the right application of the gospel for your everyday life, okay? And I just want to be really clear what what we mean when when I say gospel, okay? See, we understand the gospel as a story, a true story that we are all living into, and it really matters for your life. It's a story that can be summed up in the words creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, this is, this is the true story of the world. This is what's happening in everything around us that's not speaking that true message into your life is a competing message, right? There's, there's things telling you in your life who you are, right? Creation type things. There's things that are telling you what is wrong with you, fall type of things. There are things that are telling you this will save you. That's redemption kind of stuff. And then there's things that are telling you what you will become if you believe in that savior. That's like restoration kind of stuff. That's, that's all of advertising basically, right there for you, okay? All advertising is this, is, is you were made to be an awesome person, okay? You're kind of lame right now, right? But hey, drink our beer, right? Wear our clothes, uh, you know, buy these things, drive our car, dress like us, whatever, and then you will be a way more awesome person, you will. You just got to buy our stuff, okay? If you're in advertising, I just summed up your job for you, right? You're so welcome, okay? But that is not the true story. That's not the true story. God, God made us creation, right? 
in his image. He made us to have this perfect and right relationship with him and with each other and really with the whole of creation. But but there was this fall, right? We we all had this rebellious heart where, where we decided, I don't want God to be the author of my life. I want to be the author of my own life. I don't want to really submit to him. I want to, I want to be about me, right? And so we ran from God, but then we see throughout the Bible, if you read the Bible from Genesis 3 on, you see God pursuing his people over and over again. And by his grace, he keeps bringing them back to himself, bringing them back, bringing them back. And then finally he sends us Jesus. And Jesus is our ultimate redemption, And when we believe in Jesus, he reorients our future to where we know that things will one day be as God created them to be. This is the story that we get to live into. And our wisdom that James is calling us to here is our ability to understand the grid of the gospel and then apply those things to have right action in our lives. And so he says, if any of you lacks the ability to to see your life, through the lens of the gospel, whether that's in the, the really bad times of your life or the, or the boring times of your life or the real idle times of your life, ask for it. Ask for it. Because there are things that you are going to experience and you're going to look into those situations and you're going to go, I don't get it. I don't get it. That, that feels like pain. That doesn't feel good. What's happening here? What's, what's God doing? What, what do I even do here now? If anyone lacks it, ask God, and he gives to all without reproach. Reproach. There's, there's another word that's in your Bible that you probably didn't use this week, unless you're Trent Thompson, okay? <laughs> he informed me a couple weeks ago that he does use the word forsake. So Trent probably maybe used that today. I don't really know. Um, but reproach, not a word you use that often. And I'll just be completely honest with you. This verse has always confused me a little because of the way it's often worded in our translations. You know, I, I sit there and I go, okay, is, is God giving us wisdom without reproach or is he giving wisdom to people who are without reproach? Well, the answer is the, the former one, actually, that he's giving wisdom without reproach. Reproach carries with it the idea of rebuking or insulting. So so another translation, which I think draws this out in a clearer way for us, says it like this, quote, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. This is what this is getting at. So don't miss what James just said, though. Don't miss what James just said about God. It's the foundation for the rest of this passage. God gives generously to all without reproach, meaning he will give it over and over and over and over again. He will not count how many times you've asked for it. That's a really big difference between me and God, okay? That's a a big difference between me and God. Um, I'm a parent, okay? Parenting, I've learned, is basically saying like the same five things in life a billion times, okay? Um, I d- in some of the things you say, you're like, I never thought I'd have to say that, okay? Like our thirdborn, I have to tell him all the time, hey, you can't pull down your pants, okay? I was just in Safeway the other day, and 
uh, this, this lady was just like gawking, like, oh, your kids are so beautiful and blah, blah. I'm like, thank you, yes, but they're a handful, you know, and just kind of bantering. And this worker comes by and goes, hey, his pants are down, you know. <laughs> so I have to turn around and go, hey, Gus, pull up your pants, please. You know, and I'm like, ah, oh, good, have a good day. You know, and you're like rushing out of places, right? There's things you say all the time as parents, and you're like, why do I even have to say that to you, right? This is it's ridiculous. But one of the other things that you say all the time as a parent just a billion times is sit down while you're eating. I don't know what it is about eating. Food goes in a kid's mouth and all of a sudden, man, they're just like running around the place. And for, you know, generally happens with biscuits, but Gus will eat a biscuit and inevitably he'll start choking, right? And what do I do as a good parent? I say, see, I told you so, man. <laughs> I, I told you, like, why do I have to keep telling you this? I told you to sit down while you're eating, right? He's choking, and I'm like, you know, let him hang in there a little bit. You know, don't worry, right? I'll save him, right? But I want him to know, right? I'm serious about this, okay? Right? God, God doesn't act like that to us. He doesn't go, really? Again? See, I told you so. Are you serious, right? You just asked me that like five minutes ago. God doesn't tire. Guys, God, if you're a Christian, God is for you. You really need to hear that tonight. He is for you. See, unless we believe that this is God's general posture to us, we, we won't receive this promise. You just won't. I think if you're like me, right, our... our our normal thinking about God's posture towards us is something like crossed arms, you know? God's sitting here with, with crossed arms, and he's kind of like, well, I don't know, did they, meet, did they meet their quota this week, you know? Did they ask me in exactly the right kind of way, you know? Did they, did they share the gospel this week with somebody? I don't know, how many quiet times did he have, right? Okay, well, maybe just one blessing today. You know, we kind of view God as sort of this like indifferent, frustrated with us sort of being, but God is not for you in the way that like Oprah and Joel Osteen talk about you being this happy and healthy and wealthy person. That's not what it means that God is for you. God is for you because he wants you to be his. He wants you to be shaped into being a loved and joyful and satisfied person in him. That's, that's deep. That's substantive. God wants to give you real things. And sometimes the path to real things is not easy, but nothing worth it ever really is. So, so don't believe the shallow promises of other messages, of shallow, shallow material blessings. You don't want it. What we believe about God affects our response to him. What you believe about God respects, affects your response to him. My daughter is uh, six, my oldest daughter, she's six, and just her, just like other kids, especially our kids, she loves to swim. Okay? She loves to swim. And so this summer when I was on our family sabbatical, uh, it was just like heaven for our kids because we probably went swimming almost every day pretty close to, right? It was, it was a lot. And so Eden is the only one of our kids that's in this stage right now. 
Um, but she just always wants to stand on the side of the pool and she wants to jump and she wants me to catch her, right? So the first day of the summer, we go to the pool. She's like, Dad, I want you to catch me. And so I get out a little bit away from her and she's like, no, 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 come a little bit closer. So I come a little bit closer, you know? And she's like, no, 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 come a little bit closer, come a little bit closer. And finally, I am not exaggerating. We are touching hands, okay? And I'm like, Eden, if this is an adrenaline rush for you, life is gonna be really exciting, okay? Because uh, this is not that exciting. And so we're holding hands and, and I'm like, I'm basically gonna pick you up and place you in the water. Like, this is not cool. So I said, okay, no, I am going to step back and you need to jump, okay? I will catch you. Like, you, you can trust me, right? I say these things to her, right? And, and I say that, just like any other parent would do that. I would say to her, like, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Eden, have I ever dropped you, okay? I have a perfect score so far, right? I'm not making any promises, but I have a perfect score right now. Eden, have I ever dropped you? She's like, no, you've never dropped me. You know, am I strong? Am I like the strongest person you know? You know, am I stronger than Harper's daddy? She's like, oh, of course, you know. <laughs> am I stronger than Landon's daddy? Oh, definitely, dad, you know? And uh, not at all, okay, but just saying. I like to think that. So, you know, I'm saying, you know, am I strong? You know, have I ever dropped you? Do you trust me? And she's like, yes. You know, and finally, she jumps. She finally jumps. And, and I always catch her every time. I, I had to, and I have to, remind her of my goodness and my strength in order for her to jump. I have to do that before she will leap. Every time. Trust God is what James is saying. Remember who he is. He is a generous God who is for you. That's like the entire message of the Old Testament. It's prophets and people constantly saying to God's people, hey, do you remember when God did this? Do you remember how he did this for you? Do you remember he was always like this? Do you remember how he's never failed you? And God's always bringing his people back to himself. And then God says, jump. He says to us, ask. But, but don't misunderstand what ask is. Don't just ask for answers. Ask for wisdom. But then in verse 6, it says, but, but, let him ask in faith without doubting. Let him ask in faith without doubting. This is, our, this is our second point here in the passage. We are told who the person is who receives this promise. Let him ask in faith without doubting. Okay? What's it say next? What's it say next? For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. So it's a person who has faith. The caveat to receive this promise, if I could say it that way, it's faith. It's faith. Well, what is faith? And what are we even talking about? Faith is an active trust and confidence in God. But, but it's not that subjective experience of your faith that makes it strong or lacking. You know, as if you're like, oh, I really believe this right now. Emotionally, I'm there, you know? My faith is strong. No, it's the object of your faith that determines the strength of your faith. Okay? I, I used to be terrified of flying, okay? I, I've improved, but still, every time we take off, I pray, okay? And I literally pray, I'm like, 
all right, Jesus, I'm ready. You know, I really am. I'm ready if this thing goes down like this today, okay? But I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting better, okay? I don't really ever feel comfortable until we get to that cruising altitude, with 30,000 or whatever it is nowadays. You know, it's probably changed. But I, I don't ever feel a tremendous sense of ease or comfort as a passenger on a plane. I just don't. It's a little bit uh, uncomfortable. But let me tell you, as you know, the success of the takeoff and the flight itself and the landing is not at all determined on how I feel, right? right? It's not at all determined about my experience, my subjective experience and feelings, right? My faith is manifested when I buy a ticket and when I step onto the plane and when I buckle up, right? That's where my faith is really manifested. But that doesn't affect whether or not the flight is, is a good flight or not a good flight. If I'm getting nervous, the plane doesn't start, you know, shaking or something and, and falling and everyone's, come on, Josh, you know, you got you to gotta feel better about this and the plane goes back to normal, right? That's not how flying works, right? It's, it's, it's all contingent upon the pilot and, and how well the plane is manufactured and things like that, okay? That determines the outcome. So, so James isn't saying here in verse 6 that if you can work yourself up, to an emotional place where you feel zero uncertainty and this sort of euphoric confidence that it is there in that state that God will generously give you wisdom, okay? No, it's not what it's talking about here, okay? James has already brought up faith in verse 3, okay? And in that verse, a person's faith is there as it is here in this verse referring to the object of our faith. In verse 3, as it is here, it's referring to our active trust and confidence in the pilot of the plane or the plane itself. It's referring to the object of our faith, which is God. Specifically here, faith is an exercising of trust in the generosity and power of God. It's exercising trust in that. Uh, this is further realized when you continue to read, because as we continue to read, we see that James is actually contrasting this person who asks in faith with the person that doesn't receive this promise, which is whom? It's someone who doubts. Someone who doubts. Willy Wonka once said, you should never, never doubt what nobody is sure about. I'll just apologize to you right now if you're like me and you find the original Willy Wonka a little bit creepy and terrifying. Um, but I bring up this quote because I disagree with, with Willy a lot on different things, but maybe none as important as this one. Because I, as your pastor, I, I want you to doubt. Okay, I want you to doubt but I want you to doubt hard. I want you to doubt forward, I'm not in neutral. I want you to doubt in first gear, at least, okay? And doubt powerfully, doubt forward. If you come to something and go, oh, I, don't, I don't really get that, push into that, like drive into that, okay? If you get to something and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't understand that, oh, well, right? If you just get to a moment like that, don't, don't do that because that will produce a thin faith that, that will create a fragile faith that will end up shattering and crumbling under the weight of anything 
that just begins to blow against you in life. That's what'll happen. And in case you think I'm a heretic or something, which is fine, uh, for telling you to doubt, uh, John Calvin once wrote about this. He said, quote, when we stress that faith ought to be certain and secure, we do not have in mind a certainty without doubt or a security without any anxiety. He said, rather, we affirm that believers have a perpetual struggle with their own lack of faith and are far from possess possessing a peaceful conscience, never interrupted by any disturbance. See, there's not an answer that will satisfy every modern day question that you have. But there are a lot of answers. Like we've, we've kind of been around in the faith for a while. People have asked questions all along and a lot of those questions have been answered. So doubt forward, okay? There's a difference between being a doubter and having doubts. There's a big difference between being a doubter and having doubts. And being a doubter is what James is talking about here. This is the person that will not receive this wisdom. Douglas Moo, who's a pretty popular, famous uh, Bible commentator, I'm sure you all love him, says about this phrase, without doubting in verse 6, he says, this isn't an intellectual, quote, I've got questions. This is a fundamental division in loyalties. That's what it's talking about here. Verse 7, it says, the person, that person, the doubter, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Why would God not want to give anything to that person? Why would God not want to give anything to that person? Well, verse 6 says, they have divided loyalties. These people have divided loyalties. That is, they are, they are tossed around by the wind, is what he's saying here. It's someone in life, maybe this is you, or maybe you know people like this who, you know, someone says something that seems really smart, and they're like, oh yeah, that's what I believe now. And then somebody else comes along, and they're like, well, what about this? And you're like, oh, no, that sounds great. And then there's this crowd of people. Maybe it's, maybe it's just five people that you really want to earn their respect. Or maybe it's a bunch of people, and they're like, no, this is the way to live. And you're like, oh, yeah, let's live that way. And it's just this back and forth, this being tossed to and fro. That's, that's, that's what is being spoken of here. Verse 8 calls these people double-minded. And James here is actually creating a new word. He's inventing a word. How great is that? This word's not in anything else. This word means double-souled. Double-souled. So at the, at the very depth of this person, he is a divided person. It, it's the picture of a drunk person. Just staggering into everything, trying to prop himself up on the next most seemingly stable thing. That's, that's the picture we have here. It's our loyalties being divided where we are swinging and staggering from one savior to the next. That's this person. And so God says, you should not expect to receive anything from me. Why? Because you fundamentally disbelieve who I am. Here's the picture. James talks about someone who starts with himself. 
okay, and who says, I have problems and I want my problems to be solved in a certain way, so I want to reach out to various resources or people or even things, so I'll go to God for something or I'll go to this faith for something or I'll go to this organization for something or this per- person or these groups of people for these things. It's sort of having a spiritual buffet line, you know, t- t- taking a bit of this and taking a bit of that. It's, it's what a man named Christian Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism. It's this kind of principle-driven, feelings-driven. God is pretty abstract and general, and he's just simply there to kind of tell me some things and, and have me do things so that I feel better in life. James says, this is who I'm talking about. It's these people. He isn't saying this about people with questions. If you just have questions, God says, I I know you have questions. I have answers. I'm God. I know you have questions. God is saying this to someone who's just simply using him to self-satisfy themselves or to have this sort of therapy done to them so that they can just be more at ease in their life. So why? why? Why would God not give anything to this person? This isn't talking about moving in someone's heart, okay? Let me be clear about that, right? It's not talking about God not moving in someone's heart so they might turn to Jesus and be saved. I mean, God does that all the time. He might be doing that in one of your hearts tonight, okay? We're talking about going to God like you would a vending machine to satisfy whatever craving or hunger that we have at the moment. So God is not going to give wisdom to people who fundamentally doubt him. Because God isn't our vending machine and doesn't require that sort of relationship with us, okay? It's, it's not what you were made for. It's not. You, you would never be satisfied with that kind of relationship. You were made for so much, much more. So no, he will not give you what you're looking for because what you're looking for isn't good for you. It's not what he made you for. It's not what he wants for you. Um, I, I kind of like the internet, and I also kind of hate the internet. I'll admit I'm one of those guys who's, I feel pretty old in some sense, because I'm always like, oh man, the 90s, the early 90s were way better. Like, I'm one of those people, you know? Like, when internet was introduced to me in middle school, when I was in a library, I was like, that's when life just went downhill, right? But I admit, internet's great, right? So many different things the internet is wonderful for, but another thing that I don't like about the internet is how, in a real sense, the internet has, like, flattened the entire world. It's flattened what we deem as as wise or who you would actually go to for wisdom, right? And so, all of a sudden, in our world, you have people who have, like, PhDs or really wise people or elites who have just been flattened, and they have the same strength of voice in your life as, like, a, a mom blogger and your buddy on Instagram and all these different people, right? We just equate everybody on the same level. And so if you need medical advice, you might go to your friend or read a blog or Google something. And then you go to your doctor and your doctor's like, I think you have this. And you're like, I don't know, right? This person said this to me. And all of a sudden your doctor's like, what? I went to school forever for this, you know? (laughs) And so this is like the world we live in. It's sort of flattened everything out. This in another way is what James is talking about. It's that we would go to God as if God is just one voice amongst many voices in the world to us. 
that we wouldn't just go to him with humility and submission to his authority and to his wisdom. But a lot of us, we might go to God and we say, okay, God, I got it. And then we go to our girlfriend. We're like, hey, girlfriend, what do you think? And we go, hey, mom, what do you think? Or hey, dad, what do you think? Or hey, friends, what do you think? Or hey, uh, blogger I really like, like, what do you think, right? And God says, that's, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. God is saying, if you are coming to me for an opinion on your life, that's just not what I do, okay? If you come to me, I will give generously to you. I will give you generously. I will give you true wisdom, okay? I will give you the ability to see your life and the world around you through the truth, through the lens of the gospel, through that grid. I will show you the true story. That's that's the offer. God isn't going to be one of many voices, to simply prop us up with the ideas that, that we're looking to have affirmed in our lives. No, he's not just a voice. God is the voice. He is the voice. But, but I want you to see tonight that you get to go to the voice. That you get to hear the voice. That, that you can have access to true wisdom. Why? Why? How is this promise even offered? Well, it's, it's because Jesus trusted in the wisdom of his own father when he was coming up to the point of death. He was praying in the garden. Do you remember that story? Where Jesus is in a garden and he's praying and he's agonizing, he's even sweating drops of blood, and he knows this agonizing moment's coming where he will be crucified for the sins of people that would turn to him and ask him to save them. He knew that was coming. And in a way, you could think that he thought, man, this, this feels like pain, okay? Can there be another way? This seems really hard. But no, he trusted his father's wisdom, he recalled the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of the Father who caught him every single time he said jump. He did that. And now because of Jesus, because he trusted his Father's wisdom, we have access to this promise of wisdom. But more than that, wisdom is this story of the cross. Wisdom is this story. I know it's maybe difficult to understand, but if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 22, you see this explained to us here. It says the cross and Jesus' death upon this cross, it seems very foolish to the world. The world looks at the cross and says, that's your savior, really? Like that makes sense to you? Like that does something to you? That brings you life and joy and you know, like it's foolishness to the world. And 1 Corinthians says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and it is foolishness to Greeks. It just doesn't make much sense. It's, it's not the normal pattern of the world. To look to a savior who would humble himself and die for people who weren't even asking him to die for them. It doesn't make 
sense. It's not the normal pattern of this world, but this is said to us to be the wisdom of God because it says those who have faith, for those who have faith who are called is the word it uses. The cross is the power of God and what? The wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of God. And if you look down, it's a few verses, it's in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1, it says, Jesus became to us what? Wisdom. Jesus became wisdom. In Colossians 2, it says, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is not just an answer, guys. True wisdom is found in a person. It's found in your Savior who trusted in his Father's wisdom so that you could ultimately become a wise person, not in the way that the world would say you're wise most likely, but in, in a truly wise way. So if we want wisdom, we look to Jesus, the wisdom of God. We pray his life would wrap around our hearts and that we'd live out of our doubts and uncertainties of the direction we must go into his ways and into his sufficiency. Wisdom looks like the life and the path of Jesus. It always looks like Jesus. True wisdom does. So, so every single time you go to Jesus in the scriptures and you're asking God a question, you will learn something about God, okay? But the Bible though, guys, the Bible is not the end. It is the means by which we know the God who wrote it, okay? We don't go to it as information just to get answers to our questions. If that's all we needed, we don't need God. We have the answers then, right? But no, it's, it's not the end because we'd have all the answers. What we need isn't answers. We need God. We need God. And because of Jesus, you can have him. And he'll have you forever. So we ask, and God gives generously. His arms are not folded, guys. They're open. And he gives wisdom. He delivers on his promise. And he'll deliver it through his people, through his word, through his spirit, and in the face of Jesus. So ask and listen. Receive. Father God,